So the need for God to create a new covenant with Noah to protect man from the sins that came about prior to the flood um, become evident in this Noahic covenant. So another way that we can interpret the events prior to the flood is by the new restrictions that God puts on mankind uh, in the Noahic covenant, because this is how man ought to govern himself to protect from his previous or prior sins. Uh, but first, we're going to see this element of God's patience. Um, this is the verse that comes right after Noah's faith response and offering a uh, sacrifice to God on the altar immediately after disembarking the ark. It says, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy it. Um, so remember, this cursing on the ground happened in the Edemic covenant, when man now had to labor just to survive to get uh, fruit from the ground, but he also cursed the ground in breaking it open to let the waters of the deep come out uh, from subterranean, well, subterranean chambers, but also uh, bringing down the canopy of water around the earth, uh, causing the first rain. So the earth has been cursed um, by man's actions up until this point. And God is essentially saying until um, or from now on, the earth will not be part of these judgments on man. Uh, doesn't say that man himself will not incur further judgment, but um, the creation itself will be maintained. Um, and it says this because the man's heart is evil from his youth. God is perfectly aware. Uh, the sin issue of man has not been corrected here. Uh, he is going to need to put further restraints on him. But uh, probably the ground will not survive. The earth itself will not survive if cursed alongside man. Um, it says, and I will never uh, again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Um, so when you hear people uh, decrying climate change, uh, I'd point them here to Genesis 1.22 or uh, 8.22 where God has promised um, that while the earth remains, the cycles that um, dictate, dictate our weather and climate are not going to disappear, that he is holding up uh, the earth in its current natural um, state and that it has cycles and he is going to maintain those cycles. So short of God himself being unfaithful to this promise, um, the earth is not going to burn up or freeze up. Um, God is maintaining that. Man cannot um, destroy the earth on his own. God has promised that he will never again destroy, uh, or that uh, he will never again curse the ground on account of man. Um, so no, no matter what man does here on this earth, uh, it's racking up judgment for him, uh, not for this earth. God's patience continues here, uh, but the day of the Lord will come, well, this is from uh, 2 Peter, uh, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. 
and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. God has promised that he will not again destroy the earth with a flood, but he has not promised that he will not again destroy the earth. In fact, the earth itself has become so corrupted by mankind um, that the only way to um, purify it will be to cleanse it with fire. Um, and again, we see this in the Levitical um, sacrifices that some things are to be washed and other things are to be burned. Um, often the washing comes just prior to the burning. Um, I was reading the things that um, Moses would wash, like the thigh of a lamb before they would offer it as a wave offering and then burn it completely. Um, and I, I think that's similar to what's going on here because the, the, um, the things that would be washed, for example, when you get into Leviticus in the, um, the uh, leprosy, if something is found to have leprosy, uh, like a um, animal skin or a garment or a pot or something, uh, the first thing you do is you wash it. You leave it seven days. If it doesn't go away, you burn it um, or you shatter it in the case of a clay pot. Um, and that's what's going on here is he's just washed the earth um, of its leprosy. And that leprosy is going to come back. And when he opens up the tent and looks to see, does this garment still have leprosy on it? Uh, the answer is going to be a resounding yes, and it will need to be burned up. Um, So Morris here on God's patience says, thus the promised uniformity of the seasons and the daily cycle implies the essential uniformity of all other natural processes. It is, of course, only these present processes which modern scientists can actually observe, describe, and analyze. The present, not the past or the future, is the proper domain of true science. The definition of science or a scientific experiment is something that we can observe reproduce and um, observe, reproduce. I can't remember the other one. Um, but all of them are in the domain of present testability. Um, whatever we can do, re uh, repeatable. Anyways, um, science cannot tell us for sure what happened in the past. Science cannot tell us what happened for sure in the future unless they come to the, uh, the table with this presupposition that all things have continued as they are um, since the beginning, uh, which again, Peter talks about. And we have clear biblical proof here that things have not always continued as they are now. So scientists can extrapolate on present processes of science and nature to say that if we stretch this into the past or we stretch this into the future, this is what we expect and this is what we anticipate. Uh, but that's from a naturalistic viewpoint, a viewpoint that by its own definition excludes God from the equation. You have people like Richard Dawkins um, saying that we cannot let a divine foot in the door, where um, I think that was in response to a uh, intelligent design um, question. We're saying essentially we can't accept intelligent design, not because there's not proof of it, but because 
that would allow for the possibility of God, and that is an unacceptable conclusion. Uh, so we come to the table with a presupposition of God. Uh, we come with a pre-understanding that God is the creator of this earth. So when we look at these texts um, from scripture, um, we interpret the world through them. And to be honest, it just makes a lot more sense interpreting scripture or interpreting the earth based on scripture because God was there to witness the beginning. God understood how the earth functioned prior to the flood. Um, so whatever God tells us about how earth began, uh, we ought to study science with that pre-understanding. Uh, and in doing so, we're actually being more scientific than scientists um, because God has given us direct revelation of what he witnessed, not only what he witnessed, but what he himself personally did uh, in history. And so here we're going to see God's process of how he's going to bring about this uh, further restraint onto man uh, because he's, he's given Adam, or not Adam, he's given Noah some promises here in uh, the end of Genesis 8, and now he's going to have to uh, confirm those promises with him in a covenant. So God says, and God, or Moses says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that's pretty familiar. We saw that already with Adam and Eve. Uh, he continues, he says, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea unto your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Uh, so this is where we see the first really clear picture of progressive revelation, that God is changing um, the way he is governing his household here. Uh, and the purpose in doing that is much like a parent in governing a child is going to um, either loosen the leash or shorten the leash uh, based on the behavior of their child. Uh, but they're still going to um, give certain responsibilities to those children. Um, so here, we've got Noah's responsibility is to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Just like when God first created, uh, the earth needed to be multiplied. God's purpose is for mankind to fill the earth. Again, good argument against overpopulation. God never told him stop here. He is never going to tell man to stop being fruitful and multiply because he has created an earth capable of sustaining his creation. Uh, but what's missing here is for man to subdue the earth. Uh, so let's look at that. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, what happened in Genesis 3? Uh, man did not subdue the earth. Rather, he listened to the lies of the serpent, who is part of the creation that he ought to have subdued. Uh, he also failed to rule over it. Uh, he did not rule over the animal kingdom as he ought to have. Um, rather, he let it rule over him. Um, so this is not part of uh, what God is offering to man here in the Noahic covenant. He is not putting him in the position to rule over the earth because that position has been lost to him. 
and it will not be returned to him until Christ himself strips the earth from Satan's power. And when we get into Revelation 6, that's what we're going to be looking at, is the progressive um, breaking of Satan's power over this world. Uh, so rather than subduing it and having dominion over it to protect man, he has put the fear of these beasts into the heart, or the fear of man into the heart of these beasts. Um, and uh, he has extended their diet now not to be just fruits and, um, and grains, but he has now included um, every moving thing that is alive. Um, so they are now able to eat um, animal life as well. Right, in 1 John 5, 19, um, this is talking about the ruler of this world, which is Satan. It says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Um, so even 1 John, which is one of the last, actually, the, the three epistles of John were the last epistles written. Um, so even um, in the 80s AD, um, at the end of Revelation, the only books that came after this was the other two epistles of John and the book of Revelation. That um, up until this point, they are still considering the world as laying in the power of the evil one. Um, so Christ's death on the cross uh, purchased the earth with his blood, but did not take the earth yet. Uh, he is currently awaiting the church process to play out, at which time he will take away his church and deal with the evil one who still has power over the unbelievers. Um, he is able to deceive us, uh, but not uh, in the same way, not having the same power uh, that he has over unbelievers. Remember our three tenses of salvation that we've talked about. We have justification, sanctification, and glorification. Well, that glorification is not just for us, but for the entire world, uh, where God will be fully glorified through his glorified creation. Uh, but the unbeliever is still pre-justification. They have not been justified by the blood of Christ. Uh, so we have um, justification is freedom from the penalty of sin. Uh, those who are not free from the penalty of sin are still legally Satan's. This is his earth. They're his seed. Uh, but they can be freed from the penalty if they accept uh the payment for that penalty, which is the blood of Christ. We currently in our sanctification as saved believers who have been justified by Christ in the past and are now presently being sanctified um, by our um, walk with the Lord, we are progressively freed from the power of sin. If we let the evil one whose world over our minds, he can. But if we subdue ourselves, if we um, regenerate our minds through scripture, through prayer, then Satan loses his power over us. Uh, we still struggle with the old man. We are still in our mortal bodies. Paul talks about it as moaning and groaning in our mortal bodies, awaiting glorification of Christ. Uh, but we see this progressive loosening of the power of Satan uh, 
on the life of the believer, well, Christ is going to be doing that in a cosmological sense in Revelation, where he is, like, if you look at Satan as having his grip on the title deed to earth, each sealed judgment is going to be Christ plucking one more finger off of this um, title deed to the earth until he can finally take it away uh, from the evil one. And his process of doing that for him is quite easy, uh, but for us, uh, it's quite difficult. Uh, Satan and um, Jesus Christ are not equals. Uh, Satan is a created being, and Christ himself is not created. He is the creator. Christ himself was the creator of Satan. They are not equal in power. So this stripping away of the power to rule over the earth that Satan has is not going to be difficult for Christ, but he has a purpose and a plan for how he does that. And that purpose is ultimately going to culminate uh, in glory to God and to Christ in the way that he does that. Uh, in Genesis 9, 4 through 7, God uh, continues his plan of protection over man that uh, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So here we get the basis of governmental law, the power that a government has to take the life of a man. Uh, this is in a legal sense, I will require, that is in the sense of payment, your lifeblood. Uh, from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood. In other words, we look at the murder of Abel by Cain. We look at the murderous man Lamech in the progeny of Cain, and we understand that murder was becoming a problem. And why is this a problem for man or for God? Because man is created in God's image. Um, hatred of another man to the point of murder is hatred of the image of God within him. Um, this is something that God cannot stand for. Uh, but we also recognize his purpose uh, in protecting the life of man. Uh, as again, in verse seven, he repeats that he wants them to be fruitful and to multiply. Well, man is acting against this multiplication when he is murdering himself. Uh, so God is putting in place protections um, against Satan's efforts to um, confound God's purposes. Okay, so the question here, how do you see that in connection with cities that God tells Israel to kill all the people in murder versus war stuff? Uh, so that's specifically talking about uh, Joshua and the conquest after Egypt. And if you remember in the book or in the Pentateuch, uh, God has told Moses that it is not yet time for uh, Israel to come out of Egypt because the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. Um, God gave this nation time to repent. Um, the Amorites that were in the land that Israel would conquer, 
Um, God did not conquer this land just for the benefit of Israel. He conquered this land and the people in it because he had to do that. The justification for the conquest is the same justification for the flood. that They had become so corrupt um, that their existence was a danger to the purpose of God. Um, so the conquest was a divine prerogative from God, a responsibility given to uh, the nation of Israel. It's not something that uh, without that divine prerogative can be sanctioned. Um, so there is not anything else like it in history. The Crusades is an awful uh, misapplication of scripture where uh, the Catholic Church essentially tried to take Jerusalem from the Muslims uh, by means of the same method as God gave to Israel. Uh, but the justification for the conquests in, uh, in Joshua uh, was that God had ordered it, and God had ordered it in his justice, um, not in his bloodthirstiness. So justice was being um, brought. Another um, insight we have into that is the god Moloch um, in that Amorite culture um, was one to whom they would sacrifice young children, um, and it was a fertility god. Um, so these people were, uh, they were having, uh, well, they, they were definitely populating and multiplying um, but they were directly going against God's rules not to um, murder, first of all. But it's equivalent to today's, uh, today's abortion epidemic, uh, where the cost of um, fertility or rampant sex as um, the fertility gods were used way back when, um, the cost of that was the sacrifice of a child. And uh, we're seeing very similar things happen today, I would say that abortion is just the modern equivalent of um, sacrificing to the god Moloch. Uh, okay, what about stuff like that with David? Is it the same basically in the Old Testament? It is just murder if God has not commanded it directly. Uh, what situation are you talking about with David? The only situation I can think of was when he had the opportunity to kill um, Saul, and then he repented and did not. Oh, with Bathsheba. Uh, well, that, that wasn't sanctioned by God, and David was punished for that. Um, in fact, he ended up losing his son um, over that sin. Um, but uh, God also did put into the Levitical law uh, in the Pentateuch uh, opportunities of salvation. Remember, judgment and salvation often go hand in hand. Um, so there were cities of refuge um, that um, were essentially prisons, but self-directed prisons uh, where a man could go to flee um, revenge by a family member of one whom he accidentally killed. Um, but with, with David, this is a bit different uh, situation, but we understand God is a, a merciful God and uh, technically, uh, under this requirement of life for life, um, Daniel did deserve to die. Um, and I think it was his repentance towards God that saved him from that, um, from that judgment. Had he not been repentant towards um, God for the life of 
uh, Bathsheba's husband, uh, Uriah, I think, uh, he would have been judged in this way by God. But keep in mind also David was king. Um, so had he chosen to go against um, against this uh, law of uh, life for a life, capital punishment, uh, within his own regime, he was capable of doing that. It would have still been against the law, but uh, only the prophets were really able to uh, overcome or to, uh, to correct the king. The king was subject still to God, uh, but not to others. Okay, there's another one here. Like with this, the situation with Saul and God saying, go and attack the Amalekites, destroy them and all their possessions, don't have any pity, kill their men women, children, and even their babies, slaughter their cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Uh, yeah, that's God's prerogative. Uh, within that culture, God saw no, um, nothing worth saving. Uh, it was a cleansing, and it's a cleansing that can only be sanctioned by God. He did the same thing in Sodom. We get a little more um, detail about what was going on in Sodom uh, because of the angels interacting with Lot. You can we can get a bit of insight into that culture. Um, but basically, we, we rest on the understanding of God has perfect judgment, and we do not. So whatever God was doing in these cultures, uh, he has a better understanding of it than we do. Uh, we can't go about doing this today. We should not go about doing this today, uh, because we do not have this divine prerogative from God, and we're not going to be given this divine prerogative from God. As long as it's not our judgment, someone should die, but God's. Yeah, exactly. And God, uh, he's going to give a lot more detail when he gets in, well, first the Abrahamic covenant, but as a control on that Abrahamic covenant, he's going to give the Mosaic covenant. And in that Mosaic law, he gives lots of very specific um, details about how these um, laws should be exercised. Um, he's going to put further restraints on how it's used. Um, this Noahic covenant is the last, what we call, universal covenant um, that is given to all man. Um, after this, the Abrahamic covenant is going to deal with a subsect of mankind. Um, so uh, Israel itself, as a microcosm of God's kingdom, where he's going to rule vicariously on earth uh, through this um, nation, um, not as the whole creation, but basically just um, showing what his kingdom purpose is. Um, he's going to give them um, a lot of regulations on how to use this kind of a law. Um, but for the rest of mankind, um, he has given this as a little more open-ended, um, where he has given to mankind the right to exercise uh, punishment for murder up to the point of um, capital punishment. And this is uh, something that God has given to mankind in order to uh, protect mankind. And that goes a bit against our modern thinking about this. But if you've got a murderer, um, yes, it would be a life for a life. Now you've got two lives extinguished. Um, but God understands the heart of man, and a murderous man may also do that again and again. So up until Jesus, or do you think it passes now also? I do believe that it passes until now also. This covenant with Noah has not 
been rescinded um, to the world. Um, the law was ended with Jesus. The Mosaic covenant was ended with Jesus, um, but the Noahic covenant was not. It is still the way that the nations as a whole um, conduct themselves. The church is not equivalent to the nations and Israel is not equivalent to the nations. How God um, deals with those two entities is distinct from how he deals with Gentiles. God has not given anything to the Gentiles aside for a mandate to come to Christ through faith for salvation. This Noahic covenant is the last general, um, well, um, it is specific revelation, but general in a sense um, to mankind as a whole. Um, his future revelations came to Israel and to the church, um, and God will only speak to the earth through Israel and the church, which both canons are now closed. So God only speaks to the earth through scripture, and scripture speaks to um, believers, and believers' uh, mandate is to go out into the world and share that. Um, so no, God has not uh, taken this uh, right of nations away from them. God, through Jesus, did not say anything to the nations. Um, he spoke to individuals. Okay, let's keep going. We're almost done here. We're not going to get to the rapture and whatnot today. Uh, we're we're going to have to push that on to the next one where hopefully more people will be here because I think um, the, the topic of the rapture is not in Revelation because it's not the purpose of the book of Revelation. Um, the rapture is specifically for the church. Um, so we're going to find that in the epistolary uh, literature. Um, so we'll, we'll go through that next time. It was my intent to do that in the second hour, but we're already on our second hour. So uh, what does William Morris have to say about this? We like William Morris. He says, thus the blood of animals representing their life was sacred and not to be eaten since it was accepted in sacrifice and substitution for the life of man. The book of Hebrews gives a lot more insight on this. If you uh, go through and I read, I think it's uh, Hebrews 9 talks about this more. Also involved was the simple matter of reverence to the life principle, as a specially created entity by God, Genesis 1.21, not merely something to satisfy, satisfy man's appetite. Man's blood representing his life was even more sacred than that of animals, for in the image of God he made them. Though animals shared the possession of a soul and body with man, it was only man who had an eternal spirit, the image of God. Neither beast nor man was therefore permitted to spill man's blood. So God's going to continue here giving provisions uh, through his covenant with uh, Adam or with uh, Noah. So he says, then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So again, we're seeing some continuity where Adam is not going to be the last generation. This goes on throughout the generations. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Um, so God has said that this covenant really is to, um, to control the entire world from this point forward.
forward where it's it's controlling nature it's controlling uh, the animal kingdom it's controlling mankind and how he conducts himself this is a general law of how to run life on this earth with the presence of sin but after the flood uh, and god's promise to man through this god says this is the sign of the covenant which i am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations again all successive generations uh, i set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. So God is giving us a specific sign of his faithfulness that when we look up into the sky and we see a rainbow, we can remember God's promise not to destroy the earth. Um, again, this rainbow has been uh, greatly corrupted in our modern world, um, just like Cain thumbed his nose at God when God said you, you need an acceptable blood sacrifice. Um, so the world today thumbs their nose with God. Um, essentially taunting him to judge the earth again because he made a promise here and the sign of it is his rainbow that despite the corruption of mankind he will not flood the earth again uh, the tower of babel that was created after this um, i think it's josephus talks about what the materials of that um, city were made of and a lot of these um, materials used were waterproof materials as well they built their towers high um, Josephus and I think a lot of other scholars think that they were expecting God not to be faithful to his promise here. Um, they were expecting a return of this kind of judgment of flooding the earth. Um, now that's extra biblical history, so it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, but we'll see in the uh, Babel account that a, a man had forgotten God, but they weren't forgetful of what he was capable of. Um, and I think, again, that's that's what's going on today, where we've got the sign of the rainbow being one of the most rebellious movements against God um, and basically saying, come on, judge us. Um, but God has set his rainbow in the cloud as a reminder to us um, that he will keep this covenant not to destroy the earth again with the flood. Um, and remember, the uh, before... Uh, the flood, the earth was watered with a mist. We get that from Genesis 1, um, that a mist would come up from the ground, and that was how um, God watered his earth. Well, here we've got rain now for the first time, this new cosmological phenomenon, uh, where we have this opportunity for a, uh, for a rainbow in the sky. Uh, but it's also possible here that God has rearranged uh, how nature functions. And he's perfectly capable of doing that. And a, a rainbow um, is a perfect symbol, I think, of God's glory. And uh, there's other scriptures here to talk about that. Uh, from Ezekiel 1.28, when Ezekiel is presented with the uh, throne room of God uh, before giving him a revelation from God, it says, as the appearance of, a rain of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. We saw Daniel have the same reaction. Isaiah has the same reaction. And remember, Isaiah falls on his face and he says, Woe is I, woe am I, for I am ruined. And this term ruined in the Hebrew is the same uh, word used for a leveled city. 
He says, essentially, woe is me, I am a leveled city before the Lord. Uh, John has the same reaction when he's presented with the risen Lord um, in Revelation 1, where he falls on his face as if dead. Um, so when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking, but surrounding the throne of God is the radiance of his rainbow. Uh, God's throne here in Revelation 4, 3 through 4. We're going to look at this next week. He or, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones uh, sat 24 elders. Um, this uh, circular rainbow is actually is the same rainbow appearance or same rainbow phenomena that we have on earth from our vantage point on earth it looks like a bow but if you're riding in an airplane over a rainbow it's a perfect circle um, so that's an opti optical um, illusion for us in our position but this is naturally where we are um, our dwelling place is where we don't dwell in the air like the birds god gave us this bow and it's significant that it's um, shape is a bow. Uh, the, a lot of the Hebrew literature on this, uh, this uh, rainbow likens it to a bow and arrow, where God has actually stretched a bow and arrow up towards himself, uh, because this is the language of a covenant. Um, and we're going to see it a lot more in the Abrahamic covenant, where um, God's covenants are so um, definite that to break them is a threat to his own existence, to his own being, um, that he cannot break a promise because he is the faithful and true, um, that to come short of one of these promises to man, man is to come short of his own identity. Um, his own identity is faithful to his promises. Um, so he stretched this bow up towards himself, kind of like our little ditty, um, uh, the one that ends with stick a needle in my eye, hope to die. Um, it's a graphic example, but that's essentially what God's doing here is stretching this war instrument towards himself and saying, this is how sure I am of my promise uh, that I give to you. And uh, God's angel that appears in Revelation 10 is also surrounded by a rainbow. It says, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried out with a loud voice, and when a, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Um, so this rainbow will also appear in the judgment on earth during the book of Revelation. In fact, of the uh, four references of a rainbow in scripture, two of them happen in the book of Revelation. And uh, lastly, I think here, God's prerogative. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant, again, everlasting, 
non-conditional covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So here's what we gather uh, from this covenant um, given to Noah, that Noah again represents all humanity. From him is going to issue forward all of humanity. So just as we can trace all of our lineage back to um, Adam, so we can trace our collective lineage back to Noah. Uh, but he is the representative of all humanity to come after him as stewards over God's post-Diluvian world. So again, we see this action like a steward over God's household. His responsibility is to repopulate the earth. Um, the command to subdue it is not repeated because he has lost the authority to Satan. There's a bunch of verse references. Satan is the ruler of this world. The fear of animals, or the fear of man is in the animals to dominate, but without authority. Uh, thus, for means of self-preservation, animals must fear man. Their diet consists of um, every moving thing and green herbs. Um, they are forbidden to eat blood. Remember, they are forbidden to eat the apple or the fruit before. Here, the only thing they're forbidden um, is something to eat. Uh, as blood is the symbol of life and its shedding uh, is a symbol of death. Um, capital punishment is now part of the human economy uh, for anything that killed a man. And the promise of God is that humanity would never again be completely destroyed by a worldwide flood. Uh, so if the ice caps melt, we're, we're still okay. Uh, the rainbow as a sign of God's promise. So here's what Arno Fruchtenbaum has to say about this period of human government. He says the Noahic covenant became the basis for the dispensation of human government. That's just a fancy word for stewardship or household. Although this dispensation has been superseded, the unconditional Noahic covenant is still very much in effect. The judgments of the tribulation against the Gentiles will come because of violations of the Noahic covenant. Not because of the law, not because of the revelation given to the church, but because of this Noahic covenant. According to Isaiah 24, 5 through 6, the judgment comes because humanity has violated the everlasting covenant, a name given to the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9, 16. For this reason, the prophet used the Noahic flood motif, the windows on high and the fountains of the earth in Isaiah 24, 18. But next time, God will destroy the masses of humanity by fire. So that's what Arnold Fruchtenbaum has to say on this section of um, history in conjunction with the coming judgment in Revelation. Um, and again, we've talked a few times about progressive Revelation. I think this is my last slide here. Um, here's by Charles Ryrie. He says on progressive Revelation that we must recognize the progressiveness of Revelation. To be able to consistently interpret plainly, it is imperative to recognize that Revelation was given progressively. This means then in the process of revealing his message to man, God may add or even change in one era what he gave to another. This does not um, pertain to salvation. This pertains to how the saved uh, maintain their, uh, their fellowship. Um, obviously, the New Testament adds much that was not revealed in the Old 
what God revealed as obligatory at one time may be rescinded at another, as the prohibition of eating pork and other unclean meats, once binding on God's people, now rescinded. Um, so God can change his economies, his, um, his households, and how he conducts them by adding or taking away responsibilities, and he's going to give those in clear revelation. Um, that doesn't mean that everything is subject to change, but it does mean that when we see something changed in the way that God is conducting his household, we're looking at a change of economy in a different dispensation here. Um, so that's going to be important as we continue because we're looking at a great dispensational shift in Revelation moving from um, the judgment on this world and this dispensation to uh, the millennial kingdom um, that is going to appear after the tribulation. Uh, but also we have to often dig into the delineations between the law and the church, uh, between Israel and the church, um, that God progressively revealed himself using these instruments, that we can't go back and grab things from um, Israel and shove them into the church. Um, that's what a lot of the seven churches were doing, that they were closing off the gates of heaven um, to the Gentile church by adding back in works of the law. Um, so uh, Revelation especially hinges on this concept of progressive revelation that we have to understand um, God reveals himself to man progressively. All right, so now we've got this number four, our civil authority, uh, that authority has been given um, to mankind to govern himself um, in uh, effectually ju judicial ways. Um, and the only way for a nation to have complete power and be able to exercise that authority is to have the authority that God has, the authority over life. Um, so this is not an individual uh, right, but this is a civil right, uh, one that we exercise um, in nations, and nations are going to be further developed um, after the Tower of Babel. That uh, God's going to reveal that it's not good to have one global nation, um, but that uh, nations ought to be small, maintaining borders, and uh, even linguistic distinctions in order to um, preserve mankind, because um, the only global nation that's going to appear after Babel is the nation of the Antichrist, the global nation, and that's not going to last very long, and God's going to reveal that if he did not cut that time short, no flesh would remain alive. Uh, the distinction between nations is a protection on mankind. Uh, and uh, that's going to be another theme of Revelation, that a global government is not good. It's a return to Babel. All right. These are just slides of interest if we ran out of time, but we definitely did not. Um, we definitely ran out of time before we ran out of material. Uh, this is just the covenants in order of when they were given on the left-hand side and when they are completed on the right-hand side. Uh, we see that certain elements, that we call them carryovers, um, carry on like this theocratic administrator in Revelation 1 that God intended creation to be ruled uh, by a man. That's going to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ as a man rules from Jerusalem on this earth in the millennial kingdom. Uh, the Edemic covenant serpent's going to be conquered by the seed. It was 
conquered in part at the cross when Christ overcame death, but he will be finally conquered when Satan is cast into the lake of fire in Revelation 20. Uh, this uh, promise not to destroy the earth by a flood, um, we're going to see the final fulfillment of that in Revelation 21. How do you fulfill a negative promise? Uh, by coming to eternity and uh, having been faithful to it. So Revelation 21 naturally is where we see eternity in our perspective um, of eternity future and see that God up until that point of eternity had remained faithful to that promise. Finally, we'll see the Abrahamic covenant, which is the land, seed, and blessing. And you'll see land, seed, and blessing down further in the land, Davidic and new covenants. And this Mosaic covenant is a special covenant that was put um, as an addition onto the Abrahamic covenant in order to control it, uh, much like someone who uh, must use a driver's license in order to drive their car. Well, the Abrahamic covenant is a car, and uh, without that driver's license of the Mosaic covenant, it becomes quite dangerous. So if they are not faithful to God, but they hold on to this everlasting Abrahamic covenant, uh, it's quite dangerous for them. Uh, so that law is... Uh, something that God puts uh, into Israel in order to protect them against their freedoms under the Abrahamic covenant. Um, they're still very unfaithful to it <laughs> to this day. Um, no generation of Israel has followed the law and uh, been capable of receiving these Abrahamic covenant blessings. The Lord himself is the only man who is ever faithful to the law completely um, and thus fulfilled the law. So when Israel calls him back as their savior, um, they will take hold of these Abrahamic blessings that have not yet um, appeared on this earth, but will during the millennial kingdom.